Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Killjoy FM on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Ray Filer, you can follow me on Twitter on at Ray Filer. Today's topic is, is Theresa May a feminist icon? On which there is just so much to say. And so here with me are two incredible guests, Antonia Bright, who is an organiser with Movement for Justice, which is a civil and immigrant rights movement. You can follow her on Twitter on at Antonia B4, the letter B, the number four. And also with me is feminist blogger Zoe Stavry, who maintains the Another Angry Woman blog and an inspirational Twitter presence. You can follow her on at Stavers. So before we get to the show, I wanted to say just a little bit about where the name Killjoy FM comes from. Um, I had a democratic public vote on my Facebook page, and this was by far and away the most popular name. It was first used by the academic writer Sarah Ahmed in her article Feminist Killjoys and Other Willful Subjects, and has since been taken up as a slogan or a term of, a term of self-definition by lots of feminists. It labels the way in which pointing out sexism is sometimes viewed as a form of killing joy, like we would all just be happier if you would shut up about this problematic misogyny. So being vocally feminist in a space makes you the problem, rather than the problem of sexism itself, and it's pointing, it's drawing attention to this that uh, makes the, the term killjoy so popular. Anyway, coming back to the topic, is Theresa May a feminist icon? She presents herself as a feminist. There's a picture of her wearing one of the Fawcett Society's infamous This Is What a Feminist Looks Like t-shirts. Mainstream conservatives and liberals herald the arrival of a second female prime minister as a triumph for feminism, but is it? I'd just like to briefly come to um, Antonia and ask the question before we get uh, on to a little bit more about what Theresa May has actually done in her political life. Antonia, is Theresa May a feminist icon? Frankly, no. <laughs> um, no, a, a leader for hypocrisy, sure. <laughs> um, I think that in, it's not, it can't just be a theory and some words that you say or a T-shirt that you wear. It's in what you do. And as Home Secretary, what she's done is um, begin by, you know, expanding immigration detention, which sees thousands of women who have been through all kinds of abuse and violence being locked up and traumatised by the British state, only to look forward to either being released and dumped at Bedford train station to go and find their own way home, or being put on a plane and being dumped at an airport in a country they may or may not remember to potentially face being re-trafficked or abused in even more ways. And if that's your practice, then there's no way that you could count in my book as a feminist icon or any kind of worthwhile icon, unless you're an icon for the right wing. Yeah. And Zoe, I'd like to put the question to you too. Is Theresa May a feminist icon? Absolutely not. Theresa May um, is one of the most terrifying women that I'm aware of, to be quite frank. Um, she uh, has done a lot of things which have negatively impacted the lives of most women who are not in her peculiar social situation of being a very powerful white woman. She, uh, so as well as uh, what Antonia's outlined, one of the big issues is her support of austerity and she's, her voting record has been very, very, very with the Tory government throughout on austerity, which negatively, very strongly negatively impacts women. Um, women bear the brunt of the cuts. Um, if you look at the sort of work of Sisters Uncut, for example, they're doing amazing work highlighting just how much this kind of hits women hardest. Um, so 
another of the main things that I find particularly frightening is Theresa May's whole career she's been railing against the Human Rights Act. She really, really doesn't like the Human Rights Act and is kind of... She seems to be very keen on continuing with David Cameron's promise of repealing the Human Rights Act, which is, again, terrifying for women because two of the things the Human Rights Act has done and helped women with a lot has been... Uh, forcing police to investigate rape cases um, and the police have been held to account for failing to investigate rapes adequately using the Human Rights Act. Another issue is uh, they the Human Rights Act obliges local authorities to step in when a, when a um, domestic violence uh, survivor needs to escape the Human Rights Act obliges um, local authorities to help women out there. Um, and given that th in this same week we've learned that a policy of Theresa May's government could well lead to the closure of two-thirds of domestic violence refuges, um, one understands her opposition to the Human Rights Act as well as, you know it protecting migrant women. It also kind of obliges government to do something which they don't really want the government to be doing, which they don't really want to be doing, which is helping out um, domestic violence survivors, giving them somewhere to go, somewhere to escape to. Yeah, it's quite comprehensive, isn't it? So starting off from the position that Theresa May has a very checkered re record when it comes to feminism, I just wanted to say a little bit more about what she's actually done in politics because she's been an MP since 1997 when she was elected as the MP for Maidenhead. Um, prior to that, she was a local councillor for eight years and also worked for the Bank of England, which is interesting, and for the UK Payments Administration. And then uh, during the, the Tory time in opposition, she was the Shadow Transport Secretary, the Shadow Work and Pension Secretary, and then briefly Chairman of the Conservative Party, um, when she, when the coalition government was elected in 2010, May became Home Secretary, which is a position that she held until she was elected Prime Minister earlier this year, um, you know, elected, whatever that means, um, which makes her, uh, I think, the second most long-standing Home Secretary. And, um, and that has really been where, she, where her policies have been put into action. Aside from that, she was also the Minister for Women and Equalities for two years, as well as being Home Secretary in a move that was very criticised by mainstream feminists at the time. Uh, a lot of people said that they thought that given that she was already Home Secretary, how could she at the same time be doing a good job as Minister for Women and Equalities? And I think it's a, a relevant question. And she became Prime Minister on 13th of July this year by default when her opponent, Andrea Leadsom, dropped out of the race. So... While Home Secretary May's name has really become synonymous with immigration reform or, or really attempting to stop migrants from coming to the UK and making life as hard as possible for those who are already here under the supposed auspices of reducing net migration to the tens of thousands, possibly one of her most awful and infamous things that she was involved on in was uh, the, the go-home vans in London, which were vans that drove around London with threatening, awful advertising on the side saying, in the UK illegally, go home or face arrest. 
Uh, she also um, brought in the eighteen thousand uh, pounds cap for spousal visas, meaning which which means that you can't come to the UK to live with your partner, your, with your British partner, unless they earn over eighteen thousand six hundred pounds. Um, these are probably, I think, the most headline policies, but a huge amount has gone on that's had less mainstream media coverage. She's really overseen this regime of violent deportations of, of people attempting to claim asylum and of those accused of terrorism offences, whether or not they face persecution in other countries. And I thought maybe we could come to that again and talk more specifically about May's involvement in um, deportations, in detention centres, particularly in Yarswood. Yeah, I mean, it's important to remember that one of the things that happened when um, the coalition government came in, and obviously this was the um, Tory and Lib Dems, you know, post-economic crash, you know, um, and Theresa May obviously became Home Secretary. Um, one of the first policies that they um, brought forward was this hostile environment policy, meaning a ho creating a hostile environment for immigrants in every area of life, every area of social and public life. So it meant involving um, ministers from across government in how can we make life more difficult and this this is um, consciously working to back people into a corner to, um, you know, flush out anyone that doesn't have a full status. And th it's complicated with immigration because your status can change. Um, you know, it, it's, it's difficult. And there are people who have whole families here and kind of essentially lived here for the majority of their life but may not have ever sorted out their immigration status. And so with the expansion of detention as well under Theresa May, um, you're, we're seeing um, it, it's kind of like a detention whether you're inside detention or you're outside because you're constantly under the fear that you could be detained. So that's part of the hostile environment, knowing people who have been through detention. And there's a lot of people who have either themselves or a family member or a friend or a classmate there's, there's literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people affected by detention. Yarlswood is the main women's detention. It's the main place where they keep women long-term. There's, I know an, a person there right now who's been there more than two years. Um, you know, she's not the only person I know that's been there more than a year. Um, people who have essentially, like I said, they have kids here, sometimes have grandkids here. They have all their family here, but they're living a life in absolute uncertainty and anxiety, like not knowing what's going to happen. So when they say hostile environment, it's really quite extreme to imagine yourself, like to put yourself in those shoes. Um, so within Yarlswood, there's always a prevalence of people who have been through things like uh, violence, sexual abuse, you know, all of that, partly because that's why the person's really fighting so hard to stay you know, because of what they would face. Um, or, you know, sometimes that could be the reason that you didn't have an immigration status. For example, if somebody broke away from a violent household, but their immigration status depended on a partner, you know, that was British, then leaving that violent situation means putting your immigration status at risk. And it means you're, you're caught in this massive dilemma and Yarlswood does no favours to anyone for that. It's not 
a system about seeking out the truth about what women face in the world. There is no such thing as asylum for women. Despite all of what they say about violence against women, that as a group, women face in particular particular kinds of oppression and particular um, intensity of, you know, um, abuse and, and so on. Um, as a group, women don't count as a category of people that face persecution. So it's down to each and every individual by themselves to kind of prove their case. They carry the burden of proof. So you're, you're, you're a liar until you prove that you're telling the truth. So you're good for deportation until you prove that you have a right to stay. And so in those circumstances, that's just like, the, if you imagine that, that's the kind of um, context in which detention sits. And detention is like the sharp end and kind of central bit of the hostile environment policy. It's kind of like the threat over everybody's head. It's the thing that says to you, just keep your head down. Like, don't come out, you know, don't leave your violent partner. Like, just stay where you are because, you know, all these things can be done to you by the state that you are seeking protection from. It's a really deep kind of a betrayal, which is why I, I don't see how a Theresa May can sit in any category with any, you know, um, any example of women who have really fought for women's rights or moved things forward in any way, shape or form. I don't see her sitting in a category with any such person because she's presided over and actually intensified, you know, a policy that actively uses people's vulnerabilities against them. It actively... Um, like if you're someone who has been um, through abuse, historic abuse, you know, under this system, you've got to prove you're telling the truth because you're a liar. There is no concept that you've come out, you, you've, you know, disclosed, so you should be believed. You know, it's like, no, you're lying and you mixed up some dates. Therefore, everything you've said about abuse you've been through doesn't have to be believed. Um you're a liar, you know, you can you can go. It's that kind of a system that's just presided over and it's it just I think it just really intensifies actually the worst of what uh feminist movements have fought against for, you know, decades or hundreds of years. Yeah, and the kind of the kind of feminism that Theresa May supposedly um defines herself as part of is one which expressly defines away the rights of women who are seeking asylum or who are kept in detention centres like yours would. Um, I was reading about how um, a couple of years ago the uh, UN special reporter for, for violence against women came to the UK and um, wanted to go and investigate these abuses within yours would and she was prevented from having access to the sites. And this is just one of a litany of things that have come out about about the conditions at yours would that... Um, there's sexual abuse by guards that um, they won't disclose how many pregnant women are there, despite the fact that I think the law of the UK says that pregnant women should not be kept in detention except in... Well, no, that, I mean, it wasn't. They, they, they had, in 2014, there was like 99, they had to, they were forced to sh like disclose how many pregnant women. I've known some women who have been in Yarlswood while pregnant. Of course, there's no maternity services or anything there. But um, no, the, it was in the last immigration bill. It, the, the Home Office had even initiated its own inquiry. One of the recommendations was that no one who's pregnant should ever be in detention centre. 
along with a whole lot of other categories like victims of sexual violence, you know, other categories as well, um, people who are trans, you know, all these other categories, people with serious mental health um, problems. And if they release them all, there'd be no detention left. But um, the one thing that was then kind of like fought over, apart from trying to put a time limit, which there isn't, but was that pregnant women should be released. And the Home Office turned around, you know, like the government were trying to fight against imposing that. So their suggestion was, well, maybe we should put a 72-hour time limit on pregnant women being in detention. So we can't just say, stop detaining pregnant women. We've got to have some way that we can still detain pregnant women. So there's this to and fro between the House of Commons, you know, the government's recommendations and the House of Lords back and forth arguing over whether pregnant women should be held in these disgusting, abusive centres. Um, it's so crazy, but then it says a lot, that, um, the level of uh, where things have got to. That's a really kind of... I feel like my grandmother's generation would be shocked to even have an argument over something like that, you know? But there we are. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's telling us that we're having these discussions sort of tinkering around the edges about what you know how we can reform maybe make it a little bit nicer when and then there's no overall discussion about asylum migration detention as a as a whole um just before we move on perhaps you could say a little bit about the protest that's happening this weekend yeah yeah so because i'm part of movement for justice so we've been um a lot of our members have been through detention um but it's really significant how people are standing up against it and speaking out who have been through or currently are in detention. Like, people want a voice. They're ready. They're angry. They want to do something about it. And so the real question is, um, can a movement be built? Like, can um, there be that kind of a platform where the outside world and the inside world can actually, you know, come together Um and the answer is, yeah, we can, because we can do these demonstrations outside the detention centre where the people inside from the windows are part of it, so they know that we're coming. You know, they prepare their own signs. like They, they um, can shout through the windows. We can hear them speak over the phone, and it's just a joint demonstration that brings together um, people who the government have tried to keep apart. They've divided the detention centres in the middle of a farmland in Bedfordshire, um, so for Yarlswood, like what you're normally seeing is an empty field when you look out of the window. No people, you know, no one that could hear you if you, you screamed. Like you will feel isolated and in a position where whatever happened to you that no one would know, which is quite terrifying. Um, but so on the this protest day, aims to... Yeah, on this to day it just breaks that. that. It completely breaks that isolation and separation. It brings together, you know, a community. And a lot of ex-detainees who are inside when we were demonstrating before, like, come to the demonstrations once they're out. And it's enormously um, important emotionally, mentally, and in a real practical way, it is putting Yarlswood under a spotlight. Mm. It is the reason that you'll see it pop up in the news every so often. It's the reason that so many more people know about detention. It's, it's you know, something that's been very secret, but, you know, this is Theresa May's record and it should be on her record and more people should understand about it because the, the racism around anti-immigrant stuff, it's... It kind of like trumps like the the questions of of sexism. So, I guess maybe to people who are not affected by immigration, maybe they can see her and her policies one way. 
But, um, you know, if you see, if you, anyway, it's, yeah. it's different. It's not. Um, so it's it's a vital thing for people to be doing. Yeah. Um, and if you want to find out more about that and or go to the protest, you can find out more on Facebook, on the Movement for Justice Facebook page. Um, broaden, broadening this out slightly and speaking um, about gendered violence as a whole, um, I wonder if at this point it's worth asking, is there anything that Theresa May has done which might be considered feminist? And, I mean, it's a difficult question. One of the first things that that came to mind for me was thinking about the fact that she'd brought in um, a legal definition of coercive control, which essentially means that emotional abuse can be taken action upon in the same way that physical abuse can be. Um, so you might you might say, well, this is maybe one good thing that Theresa May has done. Um, Zoe, is there anything else that's good that Theresa May has done? Um, let me think. Uh, not particularly. Uh, there's a sort of certain strand of feminism which kind of sees women, like, in a position of power as kind of inherently feminist in and of itself. And to be honest, that kind of strand of feminism, a very wishy-washy uh, liberal strand of feminism, kind of... It's woefully inadequate. Um, what I will say is Theresa May, as, like, Prime Minister, has bucked the trend um, which we've had, like... which we've seen with previous female leaders. Um, like Dawn Foster explores this quite well in her book Lean Out, uh, which I would definitely recommend, um, that usually when a woman becomes a leader, like a prime minister, head of... St uh, you know, gets one of those country leadership kind of positions, what she'll do is just fill all of the other positions with men and nothing else trickles down. Um, Theresa May... In her, the one of the sort of things which, if you value that sort of feminism, you can say that she's done, uh, has actually put more women in her cabinet than there were before. And you know, we now have two women in the great offices of state. But is that actually anything? Not really, because what they're actually doing in that position is absolutely horrible like and it does negatively impact almost all women who don't occupy the sort of social status of someone like Theresa May um so poor women are you know gonna have their lives made worse migrant women are gonna have their lives made infinitely worse um even uh, gay women, uh, especially gay migrant women, are going to have a lot more trouble because we've essentially got a government which doesn't really care about the worst-off women. I mean, that's the best assessment. There's an assessment which suggests they actually want them gone or dead. Uh, so... Theresa May, unfortunately, what she's done has not been good enough. But this sort of strand of liberal feminism also kind of looks at 
basically a woman who experiences misogyny and possibly even names it uh, from her position of power is, again, considered adequate. And once again, I'm not going to deny that Theresa May doesn't experience some quite high kind of end misogyny. Um, So, for example, throughout her career, there has been a media fascination with her shoes. She wears... Oh, well, they left a brink hit in hills. Um, and they were the famous ones. Yeah. And all we get is just things about her shoes. Like the day she became prime minister, the sun's front page. Oh, it was absolutely putrid. Um, <laughs> it was a picture of one of her kitten heels standing over all of the sort of male politicians with the headline Heel Boys, uh, which was. Oh, gosh, I'm kink-shaming that, because that was every single stereotype you've got about public schoolboys wanting a stern school mum to come in at them. They really rubbed it in, didn't they? They had all these these kind of, like, grinning faces of of the male ministers underneath her heel. And the thing is, I don't doubt the sort of kind of public schoolboy who writes for the sun uh, probably is actually intensely turned on by the idea of big mummy Teresa coming to uh, stand all over them in their shoes. Um, And uh, from the left, you also get the stuff about her shoes uh, with Owen Smith, um, Labour leader contender who nobody had heard of until a couple of months ago and now is kind of... Still nobody's really heard of. Still nobody's really heard of. Kind of slightly misogynistic shade of beige is what he is. Um, And... Owen Smith uh, decided to invoke a kind of quite grim, quite aggressively violent image uh, when, you know, saying that Jeremy Corbyn hadn't done enough, he said he would smash Theresa May back on her heels, which, for a woman who one of our key images that's invoked thanks to the sort of media sexism is a woman who wears heels I think we can all agree that that's quite nasty imagery going on there so Theresa May isn't immune from misogyny um, and but however it's a very 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 kind of it doesn't impact her life in such a way that a structural misogyny would impact a poor woman who is escaping domestic violence, a migrant woman who has to prove that she's gay in order to stay in the country. It's so, essentially, Theresa May, she does have a tiny little bit of action for women who are in a similar social position to her. But for the vast majority of women, she's doing nothing good and actually quite a lot, which is bad. I guess, And I guess the thing that this leads to, this kind of like light media misogyny, is, is then liberal feminists and mainstream media feminists then saying, well, look at all of this sexism that these women politicians are facing and... 
isn't this in, uh, evidence, isn't this an indication that we need to vote for these women in order to get them into positions of power so that we can have feminism because we have women in power representing women, the universal class of people who are all oppressed in exactly the same way. And, and this is the kind of liberal argument which I see in particular being made about Hillary Clinton. Lots of people arguing um, we should, people should definitely vote for Hillary rather than Bernie back, back when Bernie was still part of the race despite the fact that he has much more left-leaning policies than her, just because she's a woman and just because, as feminists, it is our responsibility to try and get women into positions of power to defeat this culture of, of media misogyny, such as heel boys. Absolutely. Uh, misogyny, I think, is actually often used as a dead cat. Uh, to uh, So dead cat politics is... You want to sort of change the topic of discussion from something that's uncomfortable, throw a dead cat on the table and literally everyone will just be talking about the dead cat after that. And misogyny can be used as a dead cat. So, as Ray said, it's, it is used uh, for Hillary Clinton and um, we see it used rather a lot against Jeremy Corbyn, for example, because... It is undeniable that there are quite a lot of awful misogynists supporting Jeremy Corbyn. But does that invalidate Jeremy Corbyn's programme of policy, which, I mean, he's he's a white man of a certain age and consistently pleasantly surprises me, actually, uh, on in and of himself. Um, whereas... So Theresa May's experience of misogyny is sometimes used to deflect criticism and or conflate any criticism of her with, oh, yeah, well, she's, you know, there's misogyny going on. Like, any of this criticism is misogynistic, therefore, which is patent rubbish, to be quite honest. Mm. Yeah. I think it's a real failure on the left, to be honest, if the best that can be done is to attack her and using her shoes or using some sexist language. It's like, if you're going to attack, use the political reason, like, look at the politics. And there is plenty to criticise politically about the policies and, the, you know, what Theresa May's done and carried out. Um, that kind of um, lazy kind of, like, fall back on some, you know, use, you know, that is, in the end, sexist is not only, you know... Obviously, it's a, a sexist attack on, on her. We can't possibly defend, you know, using sexist, misogynistic um, language as an attack either on her, but it's also utterly undermining to all the women who are actually campaigning and want to um, fight back for real policies, who don't feel like we have to depend on any old person that comes along just because, you know, they're a woman and, and then pretend that what they're doing and speaking for actually speaks for women you know we can we can develop much better leaders than that we can um we don't need to rely on you know the hillary clintons you know the Theresa mays as the best we've got not at all we can develop far better um organizers and leaders with policies and and understanding and ideas um but that's undermined when you know with this misogyny whether it's within you know the left you know or the right to be honest it's kind of like, well, yeah, so where where are we going then if our side can't do better? Mm. Well, I think our side can. I don't really, I don't, I'm not defending any of those, you know, <laughs> stupid comments that you're mentioning mm -hmm. that, you know, what Owen Smith or anyone else has to say 
He's Absolutely. Not speaking to me. <laughs> the best way to avoid a dead cat attack is to make sure all of the cats in the area are alive. So, for God's sake, <laughs> when you're criticising these women politicians who are actively making the world a worse place, don't use misogyny while doing it. I can't believe I needed to say that. I'm glad that you did, though, because it sounds like some people need to hear it. I know. This this kind of um, this kind of liberal feminism, which which holds up women leaders as examples of feminism just because they're women, whatever else they may have done or not done, um, is... I think it was given perhaps its best name in the middle of 2012 when everybody started talking about blue feminism. It had a moment for about... I mean, I'd say there was a good three months where people talked about blue feminism. And this was the kind of feminism espoused by people like Louise Manch, who I haven't thought about in a while, and... Claire Perry, Amber Rudd, Nadine Dorries. These were the the white women's names, white political women's names, who were synonymous with a kind of feminism that said, hey, you can be a Tory and be a feminist too. Feminism is not exclusively the preserve of the left. All of these left activists don't have a handle on what it means for women to really have success and for really to make strides. And And the kinds of examples that they gave as good blue feminism were things like getting more women onto company boards and into higher echelons of business, having more women's representation in general in in the political world and the public sphere, I guess including in in places like the media. Um, And then it sort of floundered. And then there was a bit of a discussion about, well, maybe blue feminism is like we've got a free market and we'll let that happen and as long as everybody has equality of opportunity under that, People of different genders will all sort of, you know, it will sort of, it will sort itself out, and that's feminism. Um, and I wondered what we think of this. What a crazy fantasy! <laughs> I think it can be defined as a feminism, but I don't think it can be defined as an effective or desirable feminism. Um, I didn't actually realise Nadine Dorries was involved in that. I may have been overstating her involvement. I'm not sure oh, how much but, she describes yeah, herself as I a mean, feminist. Yeah, I think she does. I think she actually believes that, you know pretty much removing absolutely all abortion rights is somehow feminist because it's protecting the women from the evil baby killers. Incidentally, it's worth mentioning at this point that Theresa May has voted to reduce the abortion time limit, Um, not as drastically as someone like Dorries would, but uh, any reduction of reproductive freedom, in my view, is... A devastatingly unfeminist move. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the question that people were asking at the time is, are there particular things that you have to support or you have to stand for if you're going to meaningfully call yourself a feminist? And I would personally say that supporting abortion rights is one of those things. Well, yeah, another way of putting that is simply a woman's right to decide over her own body. And if you can't do that, then you don't have full control over your own body. Then how can you... Um, th- th- you can't possibly, you're not free, you're not liberated. You know, it's it's kind of, um, to me, quite a fundamental question that that, you know, comes back to um, the autonomy of a woman's rights to decide, you know, if and when she's going to get pregnant or what she's going to wear or, you know, how she's going to conduct her life. Um, so that one's quite fundamental. I agree, I agree. It's just so fundamental, like, control of your own body. It's 
Yeah, I would say essential to feminism and being against that is kind of... You can't develop a functional feminism if you're not kind of pushing for that or at least at the very least protecting what is already there. Mm. Are there any other things that you would say are... I mean, so I personally feel like I'm not super in favour of gatekeeping around terms of self-definition, so I wouldn't necessarily march up to Nadine Dorries and be like, you're not a real feminist. Like, I'd have other things to say to her first. But, um, you know, in a, in a kind of, like, ideal world, are there, are there things that you'd say are, like, crucial to a meaningful active form of feminism it overlaps with a with with a lot of things because we're seeing a hell of a lot of attacks on muslim women um that's disguised as like in that twisted way can be disguised as like oh we're protecting you but it's very paternalistic and patronizing especially over what uh, women wear and and i think muslim women have been real target for physical attacks um of late you know here and obviously the enormous examples in france but you know, it's here too. And um, I think it's it comes back, I guess, again, because it overlaps with questions of, you know, your religion and race and so on, then it gets twisted up. And I think that's one of the things that's happening. This um, blue feminism, mm. you know, I feel like where it really gets undercut is it can't handle dealing with women of any other culture or any other, you know, race or religion. It can't handle that. Because it's either then, I guess, like liberal feminism can be, um, we know what's best for you, which means you've just undermined the whole point. You're not empowering any women to decide for themselves. You're, um, you know, you're coming in from kind of outside. I mean, my example on the Theresa May, it was the question of FGM, the female genital mutilation, because that was something that she was praised a lot for and she worked with Lynn Featherstone on, you know, um, getting more... Um, they are looking to get more prosecutions of people who have carried out FGM and sort of acknowledging that it happens even here. Um, you know, that young girls are obviously being cut, and that's, yeah, in no way any any kind of a choice. It, it is an uh, act of violence. But um, at the same time as they were making, um, you know, a big campaign and publicity around the question, which... Um, for those who have been campaigning for decades against FGM, were all, like, relieved and happy that here was someone listening. So, hence, Theresa May got credit at that time from a, a bunch of people over it. We, at the same time, were fighting for asylum for women who have fled here to escape FGM and who are be being told by the same Secretary of State, Theresa May, that, no, no, you can go back to your country where it is highly prevalent that girls are being cut that you will, you know, you should just be responsible to make sure your own daughter doesn't get cut. So it's up to you. And what it literally means is you're 24-7 to keep an eye on your daughter. It completely doesn't understand how the cultural practice works or in what role a mother even has or what say a mother even has in it. Here's this woman who's made a decision on her own behalf of how she can protect her daughter, but here's the Secretary of State saying, no, no, we know better in this case, example, their excuse, it, it's not to say that it, it can't happen because it's a highly prevalent country that we, that was concerned. But they said that, well, you went to university, so you're clever enough not to get your daughter cut. So it's up to you. 
So they totally misunderstood. Well, on purpose misunderstood. I mean, if you want to know about FGM, there's people, there are real experts, and the real experts are the women who are dealing with it and who are campaigning themselves. Do you know what I mean? And like I say, to undermine this um, mother's decision about how best she can protect her daughter, you know, just really undermined. And, and the front line is women like that. So whether or not FGM was going to continue or die out or whatever is going to come down to women like that and their decisions, but their decisions are being undermined by the same Secretary of State who is carrying on about, yeah, we're going to stamp this practice out and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And I just saw it as it's, it's the combination of the sexism mixed with the fundamental paternalistic kind of racism. Mm. And again, the anti-immigrant side undermines you know everything else like all Supposed the other promises of the rest yeah it's it seems to be like this very characteristic thing of of this this kind of supposed feminism in which you you have a headline policy we're doing this great thing for women so giving on one hand and then actually when you when you look a little bit under the surface it's taking it all away again it's making it impracticable for the majority of women and in particular the people of all genders who are most vulnerable um so you get, as you say, like the public credit, right. but none of it is substantiated. Right. It's not actually accessible to any of the people actually affected. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it's it's similar, I guess, within um, what, what Theresa May has publicly said in, in a kind of look at me, I'm a great feminist sense, is, is a lot of stuff to do with um, supporting women uh, who are coping with gendered violence um, and as I said earlier, she did. She brought in that thing on coercive control, which is one good thing. And um, she did do a review into how police handle domestic violence cases, and that was one thing she did. But then, on the other hand, as Zoe said earlier, she's ha- she's been full-heartedly in support of the program of austerity, which totally decimates the women's sector and any kind of third-sector organisations which are dealing with the stuff at the grassroots. Yeah. I mean, there's a number of, um, you know, services that have just been shut down. They couldn't survive. They've just lost their funding that we're exactly protecting. Because in the end, it, it's it's down on the kind of grassroots that the mechanism has to happen if the protection's going to be real. And, you know, groups like the Poppy Project, you know, shut down um, threats over um, oh, so many centres, and I can't remember the names of of, of so many of them, but... Now they're saying, what, 67% of um, refuges will yep, close? Well, if there's no refuge to go to to be safe, then you can't leave. The promise that you could leave is empty if there isn't a place to go. Yeah, uh, so yeah, it's 67% may well shut due to housing benefit cuts, which also, across like the board, will affect women disproportionately. Um because obviously it's women often left, you know, with the families there. But um, in particular, so 67% of domestic violence refuges could close and 87% of those that remain would have to make drastic cuts and lose quite a lot of places for women. So where Theresa May expects these women to go Mm. is... Absolutely beyond me, because 90% of the funding for spaces in refuges 
was covered by housing benefit, which is going to be cut from around £300 a week um, to around £60 a week per room. So Which is just nothing. It's absolutely nothing. And she will happily talk the talk and say that she cares, but when it comes to things which are completely within her control. She is literally the Prime Minister overseeing who holds the bu- who's in charge of the budget, who's in charge of all of these areas of policy. She could step in in a heartbeat and say, no, we can't do that. That she's not doing that shows absolutely where her feminist priorities are, which is not with the women who need feminism the most. Mm. And in her speech earlier this year, when she was um, on, on the day that she became Prime Minister, it really, I was re-watching it this morning, and she just said the most atrocious thing, but one of the things that she said was, David Cameron's legacy will not be the economy, it will be social justice. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then continued to say that this was the, the path that she was going to follow, that she was going to stand up for working people, which is a totally disingenuous term in so many ways, and that she would essentially orient her conservatism around people who, who are most vulnerable. Which, I mean, I was watching it and I was thinking, I, can't, I don't understand whether you believe what you're saying or not. And if you do believe what you're saying then have you literally defined out of existence the majority of people in this country? Well, I mean, perhaps that definition of social justice, perhaps they genuinely do believe that it's just to leave women who can't afford to leave with abusive husbands to uh, summarily detain women because they're not happy with, you know, their passport documents, uh, to force lesbian women to show sex tapes to prove that they're lesbians because, you know, of their passports and their immigration status. So this, perhaps they do believe that this is just and that this is what these women deserve. Perhaps that is a kind of tenet of their feminism that this is what you deserve because you're not working hard enough or whatever it is so you think it might be a kind of slippery use of the term social justice in order to try and win people round by sounding compassionate mm. i think the main way she's there was a caveat she put so she she said things um that sound like social justice if you just look at the surface um, but she put there was a caveat, which was the, um, you know, for citizens, and and as someone who's manipulated a lot of people out of citizens would be, because they've cha- they've moved the goalposts an awful lot, and um, it means that there's a kind of a permission because I think they've set up immigration like a straw man, like this is to blame, like you know you can watch that, we'll set that on fire, that will solve all the problems, you know, distract you away, like but you will have these special rights, like you as a citizen you know, somehow at the end of all of this, you'll be better off. But I, that's not the real plan. There won't, it won't be better off. But um, I just feel like we have to remember that there is a bottom line. Like, this is a person who's presided over watching people, not only watching people drown in the Mediterranean by the thousand, mm. but seeing that as a useful way 
to stop other people coming. I mean, utilizing the deaths of people who are clearly in dire need, you know, who, frankly, it just doesn't work because if you're, if you're coming, you know, you're coming for a reason. You know, it's not like you just woke up one day and thought, oh, I'm just going to jump in some dodgy boat, you know, and cross, um, you know, a sea and, and who knows what will happen next. No, their policy, I remember in 2014, the numbers were starting to go up in terms of people crossing and stuff. And she was Home Secretary at the time. And the way they were presenting it was literally like, if we save them, other people will think they can come. Mm -hmm. So by letting them drown... That's the other side of it. By letting them drown, this is how we will control immigration. We'll actually stop other people. And of course it didn't, because people were willing to risk their lives. That was how dire their need was. I think that um, if that's kind of where things have come to, that's the kind of, that is a very hopeless way of looking at the world. There isn't a solution, so people just have to die where they are. And I don't know if it means like, well, we just say, well, if you're British, well, at least you're British, at least you're not drowning in the sea. But we're hopeless about humanity. That's pretty disastrous. And I think anyone who's sort of thinking on those lines is, you know, it's kind of a very dangerous direction for the society because that doesn't save any citizens. That's kind of looking very bleakly at the future. So whatever is words about compassion the reality is all the actions are we have we can't afford compassion there's no time for compassion like that is the first thing we'll just do away with um i just feel that this is pretty poisonous and i'm I'm mostly just glad that you know people didn't respond in the same way that actually is a hell of a lot of people um who have stood up for immigrant rights or marched for it you know like you know, in pro-refugees, uh, marches and things happened at the same time. So that's the positive side, but yeah. 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 And I suspect Theresa May is kind of considered a good leader because of her lack of compassion. Um, hang on, I've actually got um, a little uh, thing from somebody uh, welcoming Theresa May. Like, uh, this is from an article... Um, can we guess who uh, who wrote this? Uh, enter the stern woman. Authority rests with those who, despite the carnage around them, seem able to contain themselves as men emote women show control. Wow. Dear, oh dear. <laughs> that was uh, Suzanne Moore in The Guardian. No. Oh, that, that was, yep, Suzanne Moore, Guardian. I mean, uh, I shouldn't be surprised. Yeah, yeah, that was... Uh, what was the date of that? Um... Was, uh, yeah, 4th of July. This is um, Suzanne Moore, the punk. Yeah, yeah, Suzanne Moore, the uh, punk socialist feminist. <laughs> um, yeah, she... Um, and that is a kind of thing, and I guess it sort of ties in with the son's heel boys. What they, they want a strict, cold woman, and in fact, Suzanne Moore's article goes on to praise her coldness quite a lot as well. Um, but to be honest... Coldness, which is usually viewed as a kind of masculine trait, objectivity, where coldness is how it's applied to a woman, um, and that objectivity or coldness is something which, if you just 
stay objective without compassion, as you were saying, then you sit there watching people around you die, women dying, and I can't see how that's feminist. And I also think rejecting the feminine trait of compassion is something... And it is something which feminists are guilty of, rejecting the feminine. Mm. But why should it be rejected rather than celebrated and encouraged and nurtured and grown for a compassionate feminism, a feminism which actually, rather than pretending to care, is built upon caring, is built upon nurturing is built upon love almost gosh and i'm really coming <laughs> off on the brand now. as terrifying evil angry <laughs> feminists uh, here but you know i what can i say um maybe we need a few more feminine traits such as caring and compassion there yeah yeah as a, as a kind of explicit counter to this like muscular liberalism which holds up traits like letting people die as indications of strong politics. Yeah, it's, it's very sensible to let people die. Yeah, yeah. And, to, and to actively, you know, the, the news this morning, um, that they're building a wall at Calais to actively and enthusiastically and energetically contribute to policies that cause deaths. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm with you at saying, in saying that we need a more compassionate style of politics and one that is in, in more than words, in more than name, but actually completely rewrites the way that people are viewed, that human lives are viewed. Um, I'm coming to the end of the show, so um, just... just to f There's going to be track of the week in a minute, by the way, so get ready for this. But just to finish off, um, we've been criticising a, a feminism which takes women as its central subject without acknowledging intersections. And I think, as we've explored, this means speaking only, if at all, for the most privileged women, who are those who are white, middle class, who are citizens who are not disabled, who are cisgender. And in this way, May has slightly marketed herself as a feminist by seeming not to explicitly target women, but in reality expressly targeting working-class women, women of colour, migrant women, other women who, are, who face other kinds of oppressions. Um, and that's not any kind of feminism that I think we can recognise or get behind so absolutely yeah. <laughs> yep cool with you on that yeah so thank you very much Antonia and Zoe for joining me on the show thanks um, thank you for having me <laughs> and this is this is my attempt at doing like a, a section of something else this is track of the week and it's a song by uh, my favorite band Screaming Toenail called Bigots I think it's very appropriate to the topic of today um, Screaming Toner have asked me to point out that they are playing a gig at DIY Space for London on Saturday night and I would recommend that everybody go down. Thank you very much. Bigger trying to make a joke, bigger trying to provoke, trying to sound smart. Budget bigotry's not an art, it's not complex. When you talk about sex, do you make me feel so vexed? And when you talk about race, you only even look us in the face. 